0: Our passage today is Psalm 119, verses 33 to 40. Psalm 119, 33 to 40. We know that this whole psalm is a prayer, and the psalms are prayers, but each individual verse is also a unique prayer. And this is what we'll find here as well, very clearly in verses 33 to 40. And it seems that in this section that... The overwhelming emphasis is a plea and petition for the grace of God, for the grace of God manifested in various ways, in wisdom, in power, in deliverance, things of that nature, the grace of God. Therefore, we are going to be meditating upon this truth that we need to plead with God for His grace to keep His word. We need His grace to keep His word. Verse 33, Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I shall observe it to the end. Give me understanding that I may observe your law, and keep it with all my heart. Make me walk in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my heart to your testimonies, and not to dishonest gain. Turn away my eyes from looking at vanity, and revive me in your ways. Establish your word to your servant as that which produces reverence for you. Turn away my reproach, which I dread, for your ordinances are good. Behold, I long for your precepts. Revive me through your righteousness. Let's pray. Our Lord, just as David, your prophet, your man of God, has prayed this prayer, asking you for your immeasurable grace to be manifested in our life, we pray the same. We pray, Lord, that you will help us to understand these words and to have this kind of heart based on the new creation, based on our new and tender heart, that we might pray in similar fashion. We pray, Lord, that all that we have and all that we need for this life comes from you. We acknowledge it, but we also, Lord, beg you. We plead with you to grant us these things. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, David, he does continue to pray in accordance with the Word of God. But David, as a man of God, he understands, now that he is in Christ, how he came to be in Christ. He came to be in Christ not because of anything good he did, not because of his wisdom, not because he was brilliant, Not because he was handsome, not because he was a mighty warrior in battle, not because he was a fine musician, not because he was an excellent and supreme poet. Or any of the gifts that David had, none of those things did he bring to God in order to save himself from his sins. He had nothing, absolutely nothing, to save himself and to Merit anything in the presence of God on the day of judgment for his salvation, for the forgiveness of his sins. He knew that. He knew that he had absolutely nothing. Because he knew that, this is why he prays like this. He prays for God to give him more grace, to give him more of the spirit of grace, give him more of this word of grace, this gospel of grace in his life to continue To transform him. The spirit of grace gave him understanding in order for him to believe the gospel in the first place. But now he knows that he needs the spirit to live day by day, moment by moment, until he meets his Lord face to face. He needs the spirit of grace until he sees sees his Lord face to face. This is why he prays in this way. And we should also learn from this and pray in the same way. Verse 33... He knows. He needs God to teach him. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I shall observe it to the end. For him to pray like this, for God to be his teacher, to be his master, his instructor, to be the supreme one in his life, he has to acknowledge his own sinfulness. He has to acknowledge his own feebleness. He has to acknowledge his own filthiness that he has nothing good in his own human wisdom to do what is necessary to please God. Therefore, he needs to call upon the Supreme Teacher, our Master and Teacher, the Lord Jesus Christ. We need him to be the one who instructs us. So he looks up to him and says, Christ, by your word, teach me everything. This is why Colossians 3.16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, Let the word of Christ, if Christ is our teacher and our master, we need to have his word dwell in us richly. So we must ask for that word to be understood and to dwell in us, to remain in us. This comes from Christ and the spirit of Christ and the word of Christ. Here, too, we understand that we need to be in his statutes. As he says, teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes. Statutes or laws, ordinances are the Word of God. The Word of God is not merely a saying or some adage or some pithy saying that makes you feel good or gives you some kind of advice in life uh, to make a better decision this time than you did the previous time. That's not what the Word of God is. It is a statute or a commandment, a law from the King of Heaven and the Master of Heaven, the ruler of the universe, who created the world and redeemed us from our sins, He tells us by His statutes, His rules and regulations, how to conduct our life. So we need to know what's in the Bible. We have to know what's in the Bible. This is the means by which God teaches us. There are some things in the Bible easy to understand. There are other things in the Bible hard to understand. Whatever they are, whether they are easy to understand or hard to understand, we must ask God, beg God to help us understand them, help us to have full conviction for them, help us to believe them, and then speak up because we believe them. Second Corinthians 4.13, I believed, therefore I spoke. We must have this full conviction of the Word of God, believe it, and then speak up whenever any issue comes up. Any issue regarding ourselves? regarding any of the people around us. We ought to be able to speak up with the Word of God and the conviction of the Word of God because we are regulated by these statutes of God. We know them and we regulate our life accordingly. This takes a lot of humility because it is a part of human nature. From our birth until our death, we have this nature that we inherited from sinful Adam. This nature in us that rejects this. We want to do our own thing. We want to do our own will. We have a lot of pride within us that tells us, "I don't want anybody to tell me what to do." Children have this problem with parents. Wives have to have this problem with uh, their husbands, and then the the men have this problem with other men who are above them, whether it is in their workplace or their their government or whoever it is that may, may be above them, even their pastors. They have this problem in submitting to a higher authority because we have ingrained in us, embedded in us, from sinful Adam, this desire to do our own will, to do our own thing. So David knows this, and this is why he says, I need you, Lord, to teach me. By the word, by the spirit, by your grace, I need you to teach me what all is good and right. And then once he understands it, once he knows it, Verse 33, and I shall observe it to the end. He's determined. Once you grant me understanding, I'm not going to fling it away. I'm not going to brush it aside. I'm not going to think about it for a minute or two, or maybe even for an hour, and then throw it into the trash bin. I'm not going to do that. Once I understand what your word is, I am going to observe it. That means I'm going to practice it, keep it, obey it, to the very end of my life. I will be faithful until my deathbed. This is what David wants to do. Once he understands God's word, he wants to obey it until the very end. This is why James tells us, do not be merely hearers of the word and not doers of the word who delude themselves. Do not delude yourself in just hearing and letting the world, the flesh, and the devil make you fling away this Word of God, reject it the moment you hear it. That should not be the case. Those who are redeemed do not do that. They may not understand the initial preaching of the Word on a specific topic. They may not understand it the first time, but they're not kicking and screaming. They think, wow, I never thought about that before. Let me think about it. Let me see what else the Bible has to say on that issue. Let me go and ask. Let me go read a book that will help me understand what the Bible actually says on that issue. That's the reaction. That's the humble reaction. That's the teachable reaction. And then he wants to do it. He wants to observe it to the end. This is important because our world, and even the Christian world, lacks this kind of humility. There is, whenever Christians meet... In many, many situations, Christians, when they meet, they don't talk about the things of God. They're not concerned about the things of God. They're talking about their hobbies. They're talking about their pursuits. They're talking about their wealth. They're talking about their business contacts. They're talking about anything and everything but the Word of God. And then they will say to those who want to talk about the Word of God, You are impractical. You are impractical. You you don't apply the Word of God to your life. No. Actually, if we correctly understand the Word of God, as David says in verse 33, and I shall observe it to the end. The people who are grasping the Word of God, seeking to know what the Bible says, are the ones who are imminently practical. These are the ones who want to obey God and be faithful to God more than anybody else. We must pursue it that way. And we must not... Concede and compromise with the world, even the world that's brought into the church that says, no, 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 no. You don't need to know what's in the Bible. I'll just tell you what you need to know a little here, a little there. Uh, I, I will give you a surface level instruction and that should be good enough for you. That's what's out there in the world and in the churches. That should not be what we're about. We need to dig deep and know exactly, meditate on it so we can observe it. We can obey it until the end, the end of our life. Here too, verse 33, when one is redeemed by Christ, he will remain faithful to Christ until the end. If one does not remain faithful until the end, then he has never been redeemed by Christ at all. Those who believe temporarily, for a minute, a day, uh, a week, a year, or even just 10 years, and they're not faithful until death. These people who have this temporary kind of faith or belief are not believers at all because they have not understood what the Bible says that those who are faithful endure until the end. They endure until the end. David knew that. He understood it, and he is teaching this as a way uh, to model us and to be an example for us. Philippians 1.6 says, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. God who regenerated us is the same God who will ensure that we are redeemed until the very end, according to Philippians 1.6. He who began the good work in us will complete it. It is dependent there upon God to work in us. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 6. But Christ was faithful as the Son over his house, whose house we are, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. We are of Christ's house, or God's house, household. We belong to God if we hold fast, cling on to our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. Hebrews 3.14 For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. We have truly become partakers of Christ is the meaning of Hebrews 3.14. We've truly become partakers of Christ. We are in Christ. We have union with Christ in the true sense. If we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. We have assurance from the beginning, and then we have assurance until the end. We have this, that we belong to Christ. We are in Him. Now, if we do not hold fast until the end, then we have not become partakers of Christ. That is the implication of Hebrews 3.6 and 3.14. And even Jesus said, Matthew 24.13, He who endures until the end shall be saved. The one, we can know who a true believer is if he endures until the end. We who observe can observe with confidence that that's the way a true believer lives. He lives to observe God's law until the end. Let's continue further. Psalm 119.34. 119.34. Give me understanding that I may observe your law and keep it with all my heart. He wants understanding here. He knows he cannot understand the Word of God to his benefit, to his salvation, for his forgiveness of sins, for his eternal life. He cannot understand it unless God gives him that understanding. This is what 1 Corinthians 2 teaches. 1 Corinthians 2 says, A natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot receive them, Because he is spiritually appraised. He is spiritually judged. The natural man does not accept, does not understand for his benefit, for his salvation, the things of the Spirit of God. Unless God changes him and gives him understanding, he cannot understand it. That's the only way he can understand it for his benefit, for his eternal salvation. David knows this, therefore he prays for more of it. He prays for more of this. And what does he want to do? He wants to observe God's law and keep God's law. More of the same. He wants to obey God. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, Jesus said. John 14, 15. The one who has true understanding of the things of God seeks to obey the commandments of Christ. John 14, 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Obey my commandments. This we've seen, that this is the case with the true believer. Here in verse 34, he adds, With all my heart. He does not want to give Jesus just a corner or a speck of his life. He does not want to give Jesus just a little bit, just a taste of his life. He wants to give Jesus his whole heart. Because if he gives Jesus his whole heart then his whole life will be dedicated to Christ. And he prays this way. He wants to keep God's law with all his heart. He doesn't want to just keep it for merely external gratification, merely for external display, to demonstrate to other people, hey, I come to church every week, and I do this and that, like the Pharisee did in Luke 18, 9-14. He doesn't want to do it that way, just put on a show, I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I I get, and so on and so forth. This is the kind of thing that religious hypocrites do. But he's saying, no, when I obey, I'm going to keep it with all my heart. This is what I want, Lord, so give me that ability to obey you with all my heart. Not as a double-minded man who is unstable in all his ways, James 1.8, not like that, but with my whole heart. In the scriptures, we have models of this. David is certainly one model of this because God said of him in 1 Samuel 13, 14 that he is a man after my heart. He will be a man after my heart. But we have another example too. That is King Josiah. King Josiah is described as one who loved God with all his heart. In fact, in 2 Kings 23, 25, this describes King Josiah. And before him there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might according to all the law of Moses, nor did any king like him arise after him. Josiah. King Josiah is described with the words of the greatest commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Those three phrases of love for God are here said of King Josiah. Don't we want this? Well, what did King Josiah do? Just as David and many others did. When King Josiah was a young man and he heard the word of God, he was appalled at his own sin. And he repented of his sin. He he rejected sin in his life. And he called on the people in the nation as the king to do the same. And he went full force to carry out reforms throughout his whole country. It wasn't enough because all the people didn't repent. And there was still judgment to come. And those things still happened. But still, he showed by his courageous godliness the way he ought to rule his nation. But what David did as a king and what King Josiah did as a, as a king is also to be true of us. We should, once we hear this word of God, seek to, with full dedication, with a whole heart, obey God. We have a, an example of this in Acts chapter 19. In Acts chapter 19, we have the common people. Lest we think only kings can do that. No. We common people can do so as well. In Acts chapter 19, it describes some people who came to believe the Word of God. 19:17. 19:17. After... There was an incident in verse 17, Acts 19:17, And this became known to all, both Jews and Greeks, who lived in Ephesus, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified. Many also of those who had believed kept coming, confessing and disclosing their practices. And many of those who practiced magic brought their books together and began burning them in the sight of all. And they counted up the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. This is that last verse, verse 20, is to commend their action. Some people might think, you just wasted... 50,000 pieces of silver. You just wasted a lot of money by burning up those books. You could have done better by selling it to other unbelievers or to other pagans now that you're a new believer. Sell it to others, make some money and then use that money for the Lord. They didn't care about that. They just wanted to burn up everything that was worthless and detestable in the sight of God. These magic books, these dark magic books, superstitious books, this is what they wanted to get rid of. Witchcraft and sorcery. This is what they were getting up, uh, giving up. They wanted nothing to do with it anymore. Just like Josiah did. He tore down the pagan altars. He destroyed the idols. He even executed the priests. And then once he executed the, the pagan priests, he burned their bones on their, their altars. And then he got rid of everything. This is the kind of stuff he did. This is what was happening with uh, the people in Acts 19. They wanted to keep God's law with their whole heart. They wanted no compromise. They wanted no hint of sin around them and in their life. Verse 35. Psalm 119, 35. Make me walk in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Make me walk. He knows he needs to walk according to the law of God, according to the Spirit of God. He knows he needs to walk. Walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. He knows that. He knows, but where does the power originate? Where can he find this power to actually do it? He's He's not tightening his own belt. He's not depending his efforts on his own human abilities. He's not doing any of that. He knows he has to depend on God to work in him. To make him walk in the path of God's commandments. God, make me walk. I can't walk. You need to make me walk. Here we find something that is very reprehensible to many people. They say that God should not, does not, would not ever make me do anything. Because if he made me do anything, it would be contrary to my free will it would be contrary to my will it would be contrary to my goodwill after all i'm a swell chap after all you know i've got have got some sin in my life but i'm not so bad so why should god make me do anything the moment they think of god making them do something they are repulsed by it they they just want to throw up they want nothing to do with it how could god do that doesn't He love me? If He loves me, then he would, make me, he would not make me do anything. He would allow me to do my own will. And in due time, if I so choose, I will obey Him. I'll believe in Him. I'll do this or that. That's not the way it works. That's not the way salvation works. And that's not the way sanctification works. Our holiness and growth in the Christian life, it doesn't work that way. We need to depend on God. It says in verse 35, make me walk in the path of your commandments. Only one who properly understands his situation before the master and ruler of the universe would pray this way. We who think we are great people, we who think we are wise, we would not pray this way. Only those who understand their humble and contrite state before the King of Heaven would actually pray this way. Make me do what you want me to do. And when I do what you want me to do. I will take joy in it. This is what he says. Verse 35. For I delight in it. He delights in the path of God's commandments. He delights in it. He has no regrets. He's not doing this and saying this begrudgingly. He's, he wants to do it. He's overjoyed. He's got extreme zeal to do it. This is how enthusiastic he is. He's excited to do the will of God. That's why he says, make me do your will. Make me walk in the path of your commandments. This is the kind of proper disposition we should have. When we pray to God, I want to know you. And I want to do what pleases you. We ought to seek after those things that please him and delight in that. Though we may not understand it all, we seek to understand. And as we understand, we delight to know what God says, what God wants us to do, how we should be, what our ambitions should be, what our values should be, what our pursuits should be in life. All of this conforms to the will of God because we delight in it. Now, the, the superficial Christian and the unbelievers... Other unbelievers, as the superficial Christian, they do not understand this. They think obedience to God, they think doing the will of God, and they think God making them do something, is a heavy, heavy load that they don't want to bear. They absolutely despise it, and they would shake it off their shoulders the moment it touches it, their shoulders. But that's not the way Jesus looked at it. Notice. Matthew 11, Matthew 11, verse 28, Eleven twenty eight. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my load is light. Here he compares... The the two kinds of loads, the burdens that the people have. The one kind he calls weary, verse 28, weary and heavy laden. And people who have that have no rest. This is like slavery. This is like actual slavery and it's like slavery to sin. The Egyptian slavery that Israel faced was harsh. It was cruel. It was miserable. This was heavy laden and it made them weary. They had no rest. In fact, when they complained, the Egyptians made the, the people of Israel work even harder and harder and harder. There was no rest for them. This is the way sin is too. Sin makes life miserable. Yes, there are pleasures, but ultimately it's empty, it's miserable, it leads to dark and dingy paths, and people are demoralized by the time they reach that. They're down to their lowest. That's what sin does. And this is the sense in which he means that sin is wearisome and heavy laden. This, This is the sense in which he means it. But Jesus promises that his will, he says, verse 28, I will give you rest. I'll give you rest from this burden of sin. Take my yoke upon you, verse 29, and learn from me. This is what David is praying. He wants to learn from Christ. Learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. People think Jesus is a harsh and cruel master. People think that he's going to heap on them a burden on their shoulders that they can't bear. But Jesus says, no, I'm gentle and humble. Because it it is arrogant and proud masters who inflict on their slaves a burden that the slaves cannot bear. But Jesus says, I'm not like that. I'm gentle and I'm a humble uh, master. This is the way I am, and you will have rest. You shall find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my load is light. Wasn't it easy for the people of Israel, in a sense, to live in the inheritance of the land of Canaan? When they conquered the Canaanites, and they did that by the power of God, when they conquered the Canaanites and they lived in that land, was it not easy? And was it not better? than living in the land of Egypt. Even better than living in the land of Goshen. Wasn't it better? Yes, certainly it was better. It was lighter. It was easy. They inherited fields that they did not plant. They inherited vineyards and olive yards and everything. A land flowing with milk and honey. They inherited this. And it was easy for them. It was light. It was a breeze. This is the symbolism that God's saying here. That... Following God's ways is delightful. It's easy compared to sin. It's easy because we are completely dependent upon the grace of God, and we know God will work in us, sometimes gradually and sometimes by leaps and bounds, to transform us and reform us according to the image of Christ. This is why David delights in it, and we should also. Back to Psalm 119. 119 verse 36. 36. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to dishonest gain. Incline my heart. Now he's speaking not just of the outward motions of faithfulness, but the inward. Incline my heart. He knows that he needs to have his heart bent in the right direction. He needs to have a proclivity that comes from heaven, not from within himself. This bent in inclination in the right direction has to come from God to change him from the inside out. By this means, he will not be a hypocrite. By this, he will not be a hypocrite. Doing something that's religious, but really inside, he despises and hates the things of God. He, he's not wanting to be that way. He wants his heart to be inclined in the right way. He knows that it is based on the mercy of God and the grace of God that this will happen. And when it is inclined to the testimonies or the words of God, it will not be inclined to dishonest gain. Isn't that what many people have deep inside? Don't we all have deep inside? We want things that we should not have. We, we covet, we're greedy, and we seek malicious ways sometimes, deceitful ways in order to obtain those things whatever they may be. We seek for those kinds of things. It starts on the inside, and then we pretend on the outside, no, 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 we're not like that. We're honest people. We're, we're people of integrity. No, I would never say a lie to you. I would never deceive you. I would never exploit you. No, 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 I would never do that. This happens every day. It happens every day. But that's the way it is. People are that way. And he's saying, if my heart is inclined to your word, to your testimonies, then I will not be inclined. I will not have this bent, this sinful bent for dishonest gain. I will earn a righteous living. I will work hard. I will earn what I deserve. I will earn from the wages and I will supply my needs and the needs of my family according to honest means. This is what I will do. And I will not exploit. I will not steal. I will not deceive. I will not murder or anything else in order to obtain what I want. 37. Verse 37. Turn away my eyes from looking at vanity and revive me in your ways. He asked for God to turn away his eyes from looking at vanity, at vain things. Vain, futile, or empty things. He wants nothing to do with vain things. He wants... His eyes to be fixed and focused on the ways of God. To be revived. To be uh, rejuvenated into the things of God. This is all he wants. Now when he says eyes, he's using just a part of the body in order to illustrate the ways in which we commonly sin. He's not excluding the, the ways we sin with our ears or with our mouths or with our minds or with our hands and feet. He's not diminishing that, he's just explaining that even with my eyes, when my eyes are looking at something, I want my eyes only to look at and to muse and to consider those things that are true, righteous, perfect, excellent, those things that conform to your word. I don't want to fix my eyes on anything that is impure, unholy, sinful, wrong. I don't want anything like that. I want my eyes to be regulated, guided by everything that's righteous and good. He prays this way. Should we not do the same? Whether it's our eyes or ears or mouth, whatever it is, should we not ask God, whenever we awake in the morning, turn away my eyes from looking at vanity and revive me in your ways? Whenever we step out of the house, should we not ask God, turn away my eyes from looking at vanity and revive me in your ways? Whenever we go to the workplace or to church or any place else, to the mall, wherever we go, turn away my eyes from looking at vanity and revive me in your ways. This should be our prayer. The same with not only the eyes, but with the ears, the mouth, the hands, the feet. Do not use your bodily parts for anything that is sinful and wicked. Leave it alone. Abandon it completely. Do not compromise with anything that will drive you into and plunge you into sin. We know one of the common problems David had to face. David knew from this that he stumbled. We don't know if this was before he committed adultery or after he committed adultery when he wrote and composed the psalm. But he knew he had this propensity. And so he is saying here, Turn away my eyes from all that is sexually impure. Everything that is sexually impure, I don't want to fix my eyes on those things. Take it away from me. I don't want to think about it. He only wants to think about the things of God. Verse 38 Establish your word to your servant as that which produces reverence for you. He wants the word of God to be established in him as God's servant. He does not serve himself, he serves God. He wants the word of God to be implanted and conforming him to the ways of God so that it produces what? Verse 38, As that which produces reverence for you. He wants the reverence of God to be the outcome of knowing the word of God. Reverence or fear of God. He wants the reverence or the fear of God. We know this that this is the goal of the Christian life, that we ought to conform our life to the life of God by fear. Psalm 130, Psalm 130, verse 3. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who can stand? But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. There is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. Why does God forgive us of our sins? He forgives us so that the goal or the outcome is one of the outcomes is the fear of God, the reverence of God. Whatever we hear from this word, if it doesn't produce a solemn reverence of God or fear of God, then that word has not been either preached correctly or it has not been received correctly. Something is amiss. Either it wasn't preached right or it wasn't received right if it does not produce fear in the person. It should produce the fear of God. Isn't that what it says in Proverbs 1.7? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Isn't that the goal? Isn't it to be wise and fearful of God? Fearing God. Proverbs nine ten as well. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and not the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Now, we might say, well, this is just in the Old Testament. Many people say that, that just in the Old Testament we are to fear God, but in the New Testament we are to love God. In the Old Testament God is righteous and holy, but in the New Testament He's loving, kind, and gracious. That's not the right way to look at God. Anybody who presents God that way worships an idol. That is not the God of the Bible. In the New Testament, from the lips of Jesus, Matthew 10:28, Jesus said, And do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Jesus knows that the outcome of hearing and receiving the word of God properly should be the fear of God in order to motivate us to be prepared for the day of judgment. Fear God for that day. 2 Corinthians. The Apostle Paul continues this in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. Therefore, having these promises, beloved... Let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Perfecting holiness in the fear of God and rejecting, cleansing ourselves from all defilement. 2 Corinthians 7, verse 1. Not only do we have that, but the Apostle continues in Philippians. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. Philippians 2, 12. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. The Apostle calls on the Philippians, just as he calls on all of us, to work out or to demonstrate our salvation, manifest it, produce this kind of fruit with Fear and trembling. He's not talking about working for salvation. He's talking about demonstrating it, working it out, displaying our salvation. With fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. The good pleasure of God by the Spirit and the Word produces this kind of fear of God in us. Verse 39, Psalm 119 39. Turn away my reproach, which I dread, for your ordinances are good. Turn away my reproach, which I dread, for your ordinances are good. Now what will happen to the one who lives his life according to the verses we have just read? What will happen? What will happen naturally, just as it says in the Beatitudes, it told us in the Beatitudes... Matthew five ten to 12, it said that, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. David is a prophet, and what does David have as he's faithful to God? As he seeks to live a righteous life before other people, what happens? People reproach him. People reproach or they slander him. They say evil things about him. They speak against him. They, they gossip about him. They seek to defame his name. They seek to say, this man is overzealous. This man, he must have a demon. Why is he doing this? Why is he saying that? That man must be a false teacher because everybody else is saying the other thing. Why are you the only one saying this? So reproach falls or disdain falls on David because nobody else is living that way. This is what Jesus said would happen to us. When we live for righteousness' sake, Matthew 5, 10-12, when we live for righteousness' sake then people will insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. You are seeking to be faithful to God and then people turn against you and call you an evildoer. They reproach you. They slander you. And David, just like all of us, we naturally, we dread this. Who wants to, who begs for persecution? Anybody who's thinking rightly according to the scriptures does not beg for people to persecute him. He wants people to like him. He wants people to embrace the gospel. That's what the man of God wants. But when he thinks of people insulting him, speaking falsely of him, he does dread it. He does have some fear. He does not desire it. He doesn't plunge his head, um, you know, uh, headlong into the situation. He doesn't do it that way. He goes about it with fear and trembling. He goes about it with prayer. He goes about it in a way that seeks for God to protect him... ...as much as God desires to do in that particular situation. So this is why he says, "...turn away away my reproach which I dread." This would also be similar to the Lord's Prayer. "...and lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from evil." "...lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from evil." I don't want that kind of evil happening to me. I want to be faithful to you, Lord, but don't let those things happen to me. That, The thought of it happening will not stop him, but he's got the right attitude about it. He's not going into it brazenly, nonchalantly. He's not going in there that way. He's going in there knowing he needs to depend on God's grace and power to protect him as much as God wills to protect him. So turn away my reproach, which I dread. This does not always happen in this life. God does not always protect His people in this life. But He will protect them on the day of judgment. And on that day of judgment, He will vindicate us. He will exonerate us. He will tell everyone that these are His people. Well done, good and faithful slave. That will be said to us. And then the wicked, our persecutors they will be punished by Christ. So ultimately on that day, that's when everything will be settled. All accounts will be settled on that day. What is it there? Therefore now that motivates the prophet of God to pursue this in spite of the reproaches he'll face. Verse 39. For your ordinances are good. He believes that God's ordinances, laws, and words are good. There's nothing evil in them. He is completely convinced that God is good and his word is good. It says that you are good and your words are good. So if God is good and his words are good, therefore, we ought to believe it. And this will sustain us and help us whenever persecution arises. You see, the problem we face is that when the vast majority of people, when they slander us, when they say, you Christians, you stand up for this or that, you're wrong. Because everybody else doesn't believe that. We are liable to believing them. We are liable to thinking that, If everybody believes it, it must be true. How could there be so many stupid and foolish people in the world? That's what goes into our minds. How could there be so many people like that? If the majority believes it, it must be right and true. So that must be good. And then we have suspicions on the word of God. Well, maybe it's evil. Maybe it's wrong. Maybe there's a better way. Okay, God says it's the wise way. But maybe there's a wiser way that other people have figured out. This is what happens inside of us. And this is what makes us susceptible to sin. This is what happened to Adam and Eve, did it not? God created Adam and Eve perfectly righteous. They had original righteousness. No sin in them. No death in them. No evil thoughts in them. They were innocent on the day they were created. And then God said to them that from every tree of the garden you may eat freely. Freely you may eat of every tree of the garden." But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat from it. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Was not God good and gracious and abundant toward them? Certainly He was. He gave them everything that they would want. And He created them perfectly to enjoy everything that they would want. Just avoid the one thing. But what did it take? It took Satan to put the thought in their mind that... God is withholding something from you. He's claiming to be good, but but he knows you're going to be wise or wiser if you partake of this fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You'll have this experience of the knowledge of good and evil that he has not permitted you to have to this point, to this moment. He's withheld that from you. You should want it, you should desire it. So desire it and partake of the fruit. Basically, that was the temptation. Convincing Adam and Eve that God was not as good as he displayed himself. He was not as good as he declared. And he was, not, he was withholding something good from them. He convinced Adam and Eve of that. And that's what plunged them into sin. But we, we should know better. We who are redeemed should know better. We ought to be convinced that God's words, his ordinances are good. No matter what anybody says this problem manifests itself often in evangelism and apologetics and missions there are many things in the Bible that when we evangelize unbelievers bring them up they bring up all these issues well what about this and what about that well God did this and God said to do that and what about this ethical thing or unethical thing according to his estimation unethical thing that's in the Bible God did this well why do you say the word of God is good why do you say God is good he's not good they bring up these things in order to trip us up, in order to demoralize us and silence us. But one who has properly studied the issues in the Bible and in human societies, philosophies, religions, he understands that God's ways are good and man's ways are evil. And whenever any unbeliever, whoever he is, says anything that undermines the Bible's goodness, He himself is doing evil. Anyone who would presume to undermine the word of God is actually the one who's doing evil, whether he admits it or not. Isaiah 5.18 Woe to those who drag iniquity with the cords of falsehood and sin as if with cart ropes, who say, let him, that is God, let him make speed, let him hasten his work that we may see it, and let the purpose of the Holy One of Israel draw near, and come to pass, that we may know it. What are they saying? Let's see God do some miracle. Let, let's, God, let, let's see God prove Himself. Then we'll believe. They want a miracle, and then they say, after the miracle, then we'll believe. Similar to the Pharisees in Matthew 12. Show us the sign. And Jesus said, No sign shall be given this adulterous generation, evil and adulterous generation, except the sign of Jonah the prophet. And then... What is the word of the Lord's response to that? Verse 20, Isaiah 5:20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes in drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink. Who justify the wicked for a bribe and take away the rights of the ones who are in the right. Their actions show that they are wicked people. But what did they do? They convinced themselves that their wa- ways were wiser than God and, and their goodness was better than God. But actually, they are the evil ones and they are the foolish ones. Psalm 119, verse 40. 119, 40. Behold, I long for your precepts. Revive me through your righteousness. He exclaims, Behold, look, listen, look up. Look at this. I long for your precepts. Revive me through your righteousness. He does not say here, neither is this found anywhere else in Scripture, I long for the material things you will give me, Lord. I long for my health. I long for health and wealth. I long for millions upon millions. I long for the praise of men. I long to be famous. I long, I long to be able to do whatever I want with the resources I have. I long to visit this or that place around the world. I long to do this. Or, he doesn't say any of that. He doesn't want any of that. I long for your precepts. He longs for the word of God. That's all he longs for. God will give us food and covering, and with these we shall be content. He will give us other enjoyments in life as they come and go. But our desire should not be those things. It should be for God through the word of God. I long for your precepts. The one who is redeemed truly longs for the word of God of God. And he knows that it is this word of God that will revive him, give him life, and give him this uh, life, joy, jubilation. It will be God's word and his righteousness that will give him these things. 1 Peter 2, Peter 2, verse 1. Therefore, putting aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the word that by it you may grow in respect to salvation if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. If you have tasted the kindness of the Lord when you were redeemed you will long for the pure milk of the word the precepts of God so that you may grow in respect to salvation. You were born that way spiritually reborn that way and now you are sustained that way. You are longing for what you tasted initially and you long for it the rest of your life. This is what David wants. He wants this and nothing else. He knows that life consists of this. We've seen this word revive me a couple of times here. Life. People think the way of God is miserable, depressing, deathly. It's got no good in it. When actually... It has life. It has this revivification. It has this ability to make us into a completely different person. A way that the world cannot make you. Only God by the spirit of life can do so. This is what we need. The word of God by the spirit of God to make a child of God and the word of God by the spirit of God to build up sanctify the child of God. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen. Lord, do make us. Make us like this. Make these prayers our prayers. Make them our prayers daily. And help us, Lord, to reflect you. Give us assurance of our salvation. Give us joy in the Spirit. And give us all things that are blessings and true and right and heavenly. Give us everything that we need, Lord, and help us to overcome whatever it is that we face, whether it's persecutions, afflictions, uncertainties. Lord, we pray that whatever they may be, that we would find everything we need in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay.